What's going on guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we have another Q&A episode. Thank you to everybody who asked a question. We are doing this on that anonymous NGL app or whatever. And so all of these questions were asked anonymously and, and I've quite liked doing that a little bit. I think that there's, first and foremost, it allows you to ask a little bit of a longer question. So you'll see some of that. It just allows people to add a little bit more context, which is helpful to getting a good answer. Um, and second, I think that there's plenty of people who also would just prefer their name not be known and, and it gives people a little bit more freedom to ask a question when they otherwise might not on the regular Instagram app where I can see your name. It's not that I ever look at that stuff really. I'm just there to answer the question in the hopes that it helps people. But I do think anonymously has opened the door for some people. It's been super fun. So I've not seen any of these. I will say whenever you open the door for things to happen anonymously, sometimes things, there's the occasional weird question. I won't read those out loud but I'll just, I'll just say weird question. And, and, and what's cool is I actually don't get that many weird questions, which is good, but I've seen and heard some, not horror stories, but weird shit that goes on. And so, cool, let's jump into it. First question, weird question. Like, I just, not a weird question, but like we're, we're calling it weird question. Um, first question, are you seeing anyone right now or are you single? Like, what? Like, what? <laughs> like, what is going on? Oh, man. I'm happily married. I'm having a baby in two months. Sorry, you know, like I just, it's funny. It's like, we're going to, we'll just say weird question. Oh shit. That's funny, man. First one. Uh, next question. Does it matter how you pick up the bar for an RDL? Is it okay to start from the floor or better if it's higher, like a squat rack? This is a, not a bugbear for me, but like a little thing that like triggers me. It's a great question, by the way. And the answer is it doesn't matter. People are like, it's not, it's an RDL if it starts at the top. If it's a, it's a stick, stiff leg deadlift if it starts from the floor. Like who fucking cares? It's the same movement, right? It's the same thing. Um, I don't care if the bar starts from the floor. I don't care if you grab it out of the safeties or the J hooks from your squat rack. I'll tell you right now, that's way easier. It's way easier for you to set up the bar at around waist height in your squat rack and then pick it up, take a step back and start from the top. But like, where you start from, like if I show you the middle 30 seconds of somebody's set doing a stiff leg deadlift and the middle 30 seconds of somebody doing an RDL, they're gonna look exactly the same. Like, you know, or, or somebody else might be like, well, stiff leg deadlift has to go all the way back to the floor. It's like, and an RDL shouldn't touch the floor. It's like, no, 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 guys, we're doing a hinge pattern with minimal knee bend with as much range of motion as we can based on our personal biomechanics. That's what matters. It's the same thing. You start from the top, you start from the rack, you start from the floor, it goes to the floor. It's like those sorts of differences don't really matter in terms of like semantics, in terms of nomenclature, in terms of like what things are named. I don't care. It's a, it's a, it's a deadlift pattern, it's a hinge pattern with minimal knee bend with as much range of motion as you can use, right? To get as much lengthening in the glutes and hams as you can get. And frankly, if you have the opportunity to start with the bar at waist height, you can avoid having to pick the bar up from the floor, which is a little small nuisance, right? Um, yeah, I don't get bothered with what it's called. It's the same thing. If you can start for, with the bar in your rack at like waist height, do it. Good question. Um, weird question. Next. Um... Doctor told me to look for online resources when I asked and online is inconclusive. Did you find anything in your pregnancy research on safety of protein powder? Dude, protein powder is just powdered milk. That's it. It's powdered milk. It's absolutely fine to have during pregnancy. It's just powdered food. It's just food. 
Like, it's literally just food. That's it. It's not like a special, uh, you know, in a factory. It's man-made industrial. It's just fucking food. It's just powdered powdered milk, basically, right? Where they took out the carbs and fats. That's it. Um, so you're fine. Man. It's it's disappointing that a doctor doesn't know that, I guess, to be fair. Um, but whatever. Yeah. Next question. Plans for tomorrow? Doing this podcast? I don't know. We'll throw that in the weird question bin. Next question. It seems like in maintenance phases, I retain a lot of water from extra salt and food. Would it be smart or okay idea to spend like one day a week at lower calories to try and offset that? Or is that just dieting without a label? I'll be clear with you. You should never under any circumstances outside of prepping for a photo shoot or a bodybuilding show, try to manipulate water. Water is going to come and it's going to go. Has nothing to do with fat gain, has nothing to do with overall health. It's going to come down to habitual and acute salt and carb intake, stress, training, inflammation, sickness. Um, You should never be trying to manipulate water weight. You should never be like, oh, I'm going to do this thing so I don't retain water, so I do retain water or whatever. Like there's, there's nothing that you should do to manipulate something that is that is just transient in nature. It's gonna come, it's gonna go. If you if you did this, by the way, if you're like, oh, I'm gonna spend one day keto, by the way, if you go keto for a day, you, you'll flush out a bunch of water, right? You don't eat carbohydrates, you won't store as much glycogen in, in the muscles, and you'll lose a bunch of water weight. But the day you go back to eating more carbs, it's gonna come back. And so the, the this this idea of like trying to, to manipulate water, it's just a waste of energy. I would not spend any time or energy on it. It's gonna come and it's gonna go. Like. Just if from a body composition perspective, just worry about fat and muscle. Like water's gonna come and water's gonna go. And frankly, you know, the I retain a lot of water, it's an interesting comment because most of that water retention comes from glycogen storage in the muscle, and it's water retention that makes you look good. It's make it's muscle, it's water retention like the water that you retain with creatine that makes you look better, to make you that look makes you look more muscular, more defined, more toned, whatever words you want to use. Um I think a lot of people mistake, you know, this like I retain a lot of water. Like I'm very curious sometimes what that means to somebody. Is it like I pinch my stomach and I feel like there's more fat or I ate a lot of calories and I feel full? Like this I retain a lot of water. It's like how do you know that that's what's happening? Like are you like hey my it's, it's hard for me to take my rings off. Like those are that's like that's more of a real thing than any of the other things I just said. If someone's like, hey, I have difficulty taking my rings off the night after I have sushi, yeah, that's probably water retention. But like, there's just nothing you should do about this at all. Seriously, it's, you're like, would it be smart or okay to spend one day in a, you should just never be trying to manipulate water water weight at all. Next question, what are we at? Seven minutes? I'll, I'll go for 45, let's see. Being a coach slash PT myself, how do you deal with unreliable slash rude clients who make you feel devalued and not appreciated? Who? Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to be like ruthless here, but like you, you don't coach that person. Um, I'm not sure I've ever had somebody be rude and make me feel, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe they have. Um, you know, it, it it depends. Sometimes there's not, and I'll just take like the unreliable part or like clients who I'm not really having the best one-on-one relationship with from person to person. I'll say that, the more optimistic part of my brain says, hey, these are people that you can, 
like there's an opportunity here for a really great experience to turn this around, right? Can you turn this around? Can you turn their experience around, improve their experience? Can you as a coach figure out how to mend this situation? And I, and I have this sometimes, I'll give you an example. I think that like people who are leave negative comments on stuff are real opportunities or people who are like, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe we, we put them in like the pain in the butt bucket. Like they're real opportunities. I, I, and you kind of, I think about this sometimes when people join the group or, and they have like a bunch of critiques or they're like big skeptics. They're like, your program is this, your program is that. And they sound like they're very skeptical. Um, and, and, and those people to me are huge opportunities. I'm like, hey, if I can get this person to, to come in with these, this sort of an attitude and stay long-term and really enjoy it, wow, they're gonna be a huge advocate for me. And so I think that, again, there's certain, you use the word rude, make you feel devalued. Some of those I think are grounds for like, hey, we're not a good fit, like let's not work together. But what I would say is like, if you're just having a client that's, the vibe isn't great and you're not feeling like it's going super well, I think there is a really big upside to trying to mend that in some way, whether that's the way you're approaching it from a coaching perspective, something that they would need from you that you're not giving them that might elevate your coaching business. Like they, they're like, hey, I really need more communication or I would really love your cell phone number or I would really love some more Zoom calls or I would really love like voice notes or, and, and it might be something you're not currently doing. And I think that there's a good opportunity to look at those clients to see where you can maybe do a better job. Uh, and then the other part of me is like, hey, you don't need to coach everybody and uh, you have to take care of your own mental health. And, you know, there, I think that there, it is your job to try really hard. It's not this idea of like, oh, I should have all my clients come in highly motivated and they should all just execute the plan 100% without my pushing them or coaching them or supporting them. That's not true. It is your job to do that. But I think there's also a line in the sand for sure. Next question. Do you think progress can still be made with a three day per week progressive overload program? Life is too hectic right now. Thanks, your content is always the best. Thank you. The answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. There have been some unbelievable physiques that were built at three days a week. We need to get rid of this idea that three days a week is not a lot of training. If you train three days a week, 60 minutes, 60-ish minutes, whatever, um, good exercise selection, you know, training hard, close to failure, even sometimes beyond failure, you can see amazing gains. If you have your other ducks in a row, you eat enough protein, you're getting enough sleep, you're being consistent with that, you're training, let's say 180 minutes a week, but you're doing it hard, close to failure, good exercise selection, good technique, good tempo. Oh my God, you can make fantastic program, uh, progression. Uh, yeah, progression. If you're a professional bodybuilder who's been doing this for 20 years and is at like the peak of your genetic potential, and you've been training fucking five, sorry for the F-bombs, but five or six days a week, and you go all the way down to three days per week, can you still progress? I don't know is the answer. I'm not sure. But 99% chance that's not you. Uh, it's not me either, by the way. Um, and so I think three days a week, done appropriately, intelligently, with a lot of effort, you can absolutely make progress. I recently included a three-day-per-week option in my group program. Traditionally, it's a four-day-a-week program, but... I, I just, not not that I'm like, oh, I've been sympathetic to people who can't train as much. Like, I actually think a three-day week per week program was something that I was like, well, maybe I should make a whole nother program um, because I think three days per week, there's a huge amount of people that that's the amount they can train and I want them to know that they can make amazing gains if they do something intelligent. Um, 
And so that's been super duper helpful. The ability to turn my group program from four days into three days. Wow, it's been, I don't wanna say game changing, but but pretty close to game changing for a lot of people who are like, oh my God, you know, I don't have that stress of, like you said, life is crazy right now. And I don't have that stress of, of needing that fourth day. I can do your program in three days. So that's been really, really great. I don't mean to plug my, my program, but I think that you have, if the less you train, the more intelligently and intensely you have to train. And I think my group program emphasizes those things a ton. Ah, yeah, funny follow-up question here. Two days lifting a week. Would you do full body both days? I would, I would, um, I would. I think that that, I think when we talk about what, what matters is the work you do across the week, right? So we say that a lot where it's like, hey, it doesn't matter how you split it up. What matters is if you do X amount of hard sets per week. And so I really don't, if you did one upper day and one lower day, or you took those exact same workouts, but you mix them together into two full body days, I bet you, you see incredibly similar results, like incredibly similar. The reason I like doing full body, the less you train, is because if you miss a day, you don't completely neglect that body part. And so if you do two days a week, but you happen to miss a day, right? You might, let's say you're doing upper and lower. If you miss a day, well then all you did was lower this week, let's say. But if you have full body days, at least you can kind of touch each muscle group once if you happen to miss a workout. And so I do prefer the less you train, the more you mix up the body parts, the more you train, the more you can split up the body parts. Just again, generally on average. Next question, scale is trending up, but clothes fit. Is this body recomp? Yeah, it's it's probably, um, it, it's just like really hard to say. These are like questions that are just really tough to answer definitively. If your body weight's going up, but you aren't feeling any different in your clothes, is that you building muscle and burning fat? Yeah, maybe it is totally. Uh, I also just like scale is trending up. Like, what does that mean? Like, are you, you know, have you gained like one pound over the last week or five pounds over the last week or five pounds over the last six months? Or so it depends because I, I don't want to be a pessimist. I think to be honest with you, I love this. I think if your scale is trending up and your, but your clothes fit well, is that probably likely that you're building some significant amount of muscle? The answer is yes. I, I would, I would bet you are, but I would also say like the scale trending up you know, depending on what that means, like could very well, if not, is probably a calorie surplus. And so calorie surplus technically isn't what you mean. You mean body recomp, which means, is this me at maintenance calories, building some muscle, burning some fat? Man, if the scale's trending up, like, you know, 1% of your body weight per month, that's a surplus. And, you know, the follow-up question is like, is that a big deal? What should I do about that? If anything, those are questions for you and some professional, I think. Next question. Ooh. Um, needing hobbies outside of the gym is so real. And, and this person's referencing the podcast that I did recently with Buddy Your Macros. And I'm glad you said it. Having gym and nutrition be your whole life has caused some mental health struggles for me as well. It was nice to hear someone else say it who gets it. I appreciate that a ton. That has been something I've talked about in my own therapy for a long time. And frankly, it's funny, I didn't actually tackle my relationship with my body directly. I, I didn't go to therapy talking about how obsessed I was with, with having a six pack and being lean year round or go to therapy talking about how back in 2014, you know, my testosterone dropped like under 200 because I was walking around single digit body fat, never eating any dietary fat, um, lost all my libido, had some, you know, wink, wink, health, men's health issues, um, 
And, and, and it, like what I'm trying to say is tackling that problem directly isn't what I did. By the way, that's a great idea. You should tackle that problem directly. I'm not suggesting you do this. The thing that really helped me was actually adding other things to my life that meant something to me. Adding other things to my identity. Things that, like if you were like, hey, what's Jordan about? 2013, 2014, 2015, just my body. I was ripped guy, I was muscular guy, I was jacked guy. 2023 me, there's a lot more about me, right? I, I, I spend a lot of time with my dogs and I train them and we go hiking. We do a lot of nature, a lot of outdoors. Um, I play a lot more soccer. We're having a baby. I want to be, a, you know, focus on being a dad. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more into my business and helping others. I am a, I'm a really deep into the espresso. Like I, I've absolutely loved like the home barista as like a, for me, a hobby. It's been really great. Um, and I've picked up other hobbies and put them down along the way, but having other things that I care about that make me happy, that are part of my identity, it's almost like a pie chart. It's like in the beginning, that pie chart was by default completely filled with fitness, let's say. But adding other things to my life has has eaten up part of that pie chart so that the part that is me caring about being super lean and jacked all the time has shrunk. And it's shrunk to a size that all of a sudden when I look at that whole pie chart, doesn't consume my life anymore. And I think that a lot of people would benefit from, from a relationship with food, relationship with body, comparison, body dysmorphia, would benefit from acknowledging, you know, maybe I, I need other things too. I'm not saying that this, dude, focusing on your health and fitness is freaking awesome. I'm just saying, if you feel like you're taking it to a place where your relationship with your body and food and training is not the healthiest, is not the best, or you'd like to improve it, I would look at that bucket of like, well, maybe I got to get out there and do something else. I, I, me starting to do more cardio has become a huge hobby of mine. I know it's, it's like funny that that's, I'm viewing that differently because running has, it's so funny, I'm, I'm viewing that distinctly differently because running has nothing to do with the way I look. None of the reasons I am doing cardio have anything to do with the way I look. And so things I do because I care about the way I look, that part of the pie chart has shrunk quite a bit over the last decade. And ca doing cardio is purely a health endeavor uh, and, and honestly a mental health endeavor too. It's something that I've grown to enjoy a little bit more. I know that's annoying. Like I, I'm annoyed that I've started to enjoy it, except for the workout that I'm about to do when I'm done with this podcast. I will not enjoy that. Um, but I appreciate you saying that. And I, and I got to tell you, something very, very near and dear to my heart is that acknowledgement of, hey, let's diversify our identity a little bit. Let's not be just this fitness person because it will actually make the time you spend on your health and fitness and aesthetics a little, more, a little bit more enjoyable if it's not the only thing on your plate, let's say. So, cool. Thank you. Next question. Creatine hype, question mark. Is it worth it? What to expect? Um, here's the deal. Creatine, I'll give you the short. Short version is creatine works, period. I'd say it doesn't, I'd say there's probably like 20% of people who are non-responders who it, it doesn't do much for. But let's assume that it works for everyone. I think that that's the basis we should start with is like, hey, it's probably gonna work. It's not probably gonna work because what I mean is that of the people who respond to it, it definitely works. I know that that's like a 60% of the time it works every time sort of thing. But um, for most people, it's going to do something. Now, creatine works. It's safe. Um, it's easy to take. 
99.999% of the time, there's no downsides. I've had people that, oh, I get bloated and I have just uh, digestion issues. And I think that there's, if I have someone who's like, hey, I get really bloated in digestive issues when I take it, I think that there's almost certainly something you're doing incorrectly, like doing a loading phase or taking too much of it or mistaking bloating for something else, right? Maybe you're, you see the scale go up and then you reverse engineer that you think you're bloated when in reality that's like normal function of creatine. Um, so I think creatine is absolutely worth it. I, I would go as far as to say every single person on the planet, period, should take creatine monohydrate three to five grams per day and never think about it again. Like when you're like, hey, what to expect? Like you're, the scale might go up one to three pounds and you might feel a little bit stronger in the gym, but I would rather you expect nothing. I would rather you say, hey, I take this thing. Uh, it's gonna help in the background. It's not a needle mover, um, but you take it because it's relatively cheap, almost certainly helps you be stronger, maybe has some cognitive benefits. I mean, there's a lot of research going on right now in uh, elderly and neurodegenerative disease where we are seeing some improved memory, stuff like that, and which makes sense. I mean, one of the biggest users of creatine is your brain. And so it's something that you say, hey, of all the supplements, what's funny is like, it's a complete walking like, uh, um, what is the word I'm looking for? My brain is, I could use some creatine, you know what I'm saying? Um, not an oxymoron, uh, contradiction. If you take any supplements, and basically any supplement, barring like vitamin D or fish oil or multivitamin, let's say, but you don't take creatine, that is, uh, it's, it's indefensible. Creatine works better than basically, it works more definitively and better than most, if not all other supplements, is relatively cheap, uh, is not age or gender specific, like everyone can take it. You know, I, I think that if, when I, you know, I have kids, so I'm wondering, okay, when, when should a kid take it? Maybe when they start in serious intense sports, high school maybe, you know, um, I don't actually know that there's no reason not to start earlier, but that would be the first time where I'm like, this all of a sudden might matter even a tiny bit. Um, so creatine hype, yes, it's creatine works. Is it worth it? Yes, absolutely. What to expect? I would expect nothing. And I would just, it's funny, I would expect nothing and just have faith that it's doing something. I know that that's not a great vote of confidence, but I don't want people to think creatine's like gonna all of a sudden make them double their bench press. Next question. Recently, I haven't had the energy to work out. Reasons for it. I just feel down slash lonely and I feel like I'm doing the same thing day in, day out. I'm trying to lose a little bit of weight, but I just want to eat crap and it's doing my nut in. <laughs> and I, I know I need to change something. I just don't know where to start. I can't help but think, hey, you got to work with somebody. You got to have somebody. Like you're asking me this question. There's got to be somebody in your life, a professional who you can have as a sounding board for this stuff. Um. I think there is an element of what I just said prior about having other hobbies and having other things you're interested in to kind of um, make fitness take on less of a dominating role in your brain 24-7, what you're eating, what you're training, uh, and have it be actually a smaller portion of, of what like kind of you think about on a daily basis. Um, I think when you're like, hey, I want to lose a little bit of weight, but I, I just want to eat crap, I think I think you kind of... I'm kind of drawing a metaphorical line back to the beginning of what you said, where you're like, hey, I'm feeling down and lonely. And I think that there's, you can go two ways with this, because sometimes when you're when you're going through a tough time in your life, I'm gonna use like going through divorce, let's say, then focusing on yourself from a physical health perspective is something that can be really grounding. It can be something that is compared to other shit, 
in your control to some degree, right? It's like, hey, my whole life's going to shit, but you know, this is something I can really focus on. This is something that I have full control over, so to speak. And I think that it can be really grounding. On the flip side though, I think it can be something that's um, secondary to taking care of your own happiness. And it's almost like that is the thing we need to take care of first is like your feeling of loneliness, you're feeling down. And, and for you, that's making it harder to focus on yourself. And I think that there's an element of trying to focus on that first. And whether that's therapy or, again, finding some hobbies, finding other things in your life to that are fun and positive. I know that that's like a vague thing, but like I think going out and joining groups, I think for us, Jenna and I, like going out and joining local soccer teams and meeting people. And, and honestly, I don't want to sound too woo-woo, but like it's good for the soul to interact with other people. Like joining, when we were in Texas, you know, that was a big part of my life. When we, Since we moved to North Carolina, I haven't played much, but that's just because the baby's coming and, and I just feel like I've been preoccupied with thinking about that. But I know that that's something I will do this year. In the summer, at some point, I'll find a team because just interacting with other people is so good for my soul and it makes everything in my life better. I even went to do some... Again, from the espresso coffee nonsense stuff, I did some home barista classes. I went to a coffee shop in Raleigh and like did a home barista class and just met people with similar interests, trying to, you know, get into something. Um, I, you know, I don't want to tease this right now, but I've been thinking about making more of a community platform. A lot of people are doing this right now, like on a Mighty Network or whatever, like these community platforms for fitness, but for also for education and and. Um, you know, a lot of people have Facebook groups. Maybe there's something there where you're kind of going at this alone and it might be good to get into a community or something like that. So I hope that some of that was helpful and, and I really wish you the best and I hope you can find somebody or a group or something uh, to help make you feel good. Next question, where are we? 25 minutes here. Thoughts on heart rate training for running. More important to be running or switch to walking to keep heart rate in zone two. I feel like I would be mostly walking in order to keep heart rate low. I can run five miles slowly without stopping and feel good, but heart rate in the 150s the entire time. So I want to start by saying that just doing cardio, just doing the run or doing the walk or doing the incline walk or the bike or the elliptical, just doing the freaking work is way more important than this question. And what I mean by that is, is doing the work is the most important thing. Being like super hyper nuanced with the exact heart rate zones and stuff it only matters in two circumstances. Like, like being specific with the level of intensity that you're training with is only important in two scenarios. Number one is if you're training for a race. And, and, and this actually is actually a part of the second answer was is the second thing is if you're doing a lot of training. So if you're doing a lot of training, then how intense each of those sessions are, is, how intense each session is, is very important. Right? If you're doing, if you're training five days a week and they're all a little bit too hard, you might overtrain. If you're doing one or two sessions a week and they're a little bit too hard, you're probably fine, right? Because just multiplied by the amount of sessions, it's not going to tip you over what you can recover from. And so I, I see this question and I'm like, hey, I don't know how much training you're doing. I don't know what your goals are. I'll tell you now, if you're not doing more than three days a week cardio and you're not training for a race, I might not be so worried about this. Um, I might not be so worried if you're like, hey, I, I, you know, uh, does it matter if I'm in zone two or zone three, if my heart rate's at 130 or 145? Like, it probably doesn't. Um, and for a lot of people who don't train a lot, 
it's probably even more beneficial to, to not do a ton of low intent. What I mean by that is like, if you're only training one day a week cardio, it definitely doesn't matter how intense you train and you might actually want to go a little bit harder, right? Cause you're not doing as much. So heart rate training for running is more important. The more training that you're doing. And if you're the more performance oriented, your training is for the average person. If you're getting two days a week cardio in, I wouldn't stress so much about where your heart rate is. Um, I think you should focus more on what you enjoy doing, diversifying those workouts, having something that's kind of fun. Um, now, very specifically speaking, uh, if you're if you're if your intent is to be in zone two, and there are reasons that you would want to do that, right? From a performance standpoint, if you're training for a race or if you're doing a lot of training, then uh, I would pick an intensity that allows you to keep your heart rate in zone two, right? And so for a lot of people, running in zone two is not possible. You have to be very fit to run and remain in zone two. Like that's like zone two is not a very intense training intensity. And so in order to run and have that not be very hard, you have to be very fit. I can't run in zone two at all. Um, I definitely can't do that. For me, a zone two is either on a bike or it's an incline walk. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. And so if if you're like, hey, I feel like I'd be going, I'd be mostly walking in order to keep heart rate low. That makes total sense to me, by the way. If you were in zone two, I bet you can't run. I bet most people can't run in zone two. Um, but you might be better off doing your slow five miles in the heart rate around 150. Like depending on what your total, you know, training across the week looks like, or what resistance training you're doing, what your nutrition's like, what your recovery's like. So I, I wish I could be more helpful. Um, I think if you have a coach that's specifically telling you to be in zone two, then I would modify the intensity and what you're doing to be in the zone two heart rate range. I don't, I want to be very clear about heart rate. Heart rate is just one proxy. Zone two is not a heart rate. You can use heart rate to get you in the ballpark of zone two, but zone two is more of a ventilary threshold. We don't need to get into that right now. I guess we could just for fun. Like what is zone two really? You know, when zone two becomes zone three is when you cross over the first ventilary threshold, which essentially means when you you know you're out of zone two, when your breathing starts to change rapidly and you start to breathe faster and deeper, um, we do something that's called the talk test where you, you know, I usually have my clients record themselves saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And if it sounds like I pledge allegiance to the flag, United States, <laughs> Of America, I know that they are no longer in zone two, they're in zone three. And and the kind of the way we know that is when you start to work at a higher intensity, you start to burn more carbohydrates and the CO2 levels in your blood start to go up. And in order to get rid of that CO2, your body has to breathe faster. And so that shift in, in how you're breathing is really what zone two is, but that's, it's a little vague. I mean, I'm sure you just heard me say that and you're like, I don't really know exactly what he means. So guess what? We use heart rate ranges, you know, 60 to 70% max heart rate as a general proxy for zone two. It could be even a little bit higher percent than that. Um, but yeah, heart rate ranges aren't perfect, but they're certainly a little bit more accessible and a little bit more straightforward. And they're incredibly useful when they are needed, uh, when someone's training a lot or when um, they are training for a race, let's say. Next question. If I wanted to start my weight training if I wanted to start weight training my 70-year-old dad one times per week, which four to five movements would you pick? First of all, incredible, amazing, absolutely do it, 100%. Um, I would, what would I do? One day a week, four to five movements. Um, I would do a squat pattern. I would do a hinge pattern. I would do a row. I would do a press. 
and I might make that fifth movement something fun, you know? Like at the end of the day, like, let's be real. This isn't just functional. Like he's gonna, you know, uh, he or she, oh, you said dad, he um, might love getting a bicep pump. You know what I mean? Like there's still something about like, let's make this fun. And so I might do something like, a, when I say a squat pattern, I don't mean barbell back squat. I mean, something where the knees are bending quite a bit. And so that can be a split squat, that can be a lunge, that can be a regular squat, that can be a step up, could be a leg press, um, could be a hack squat, could be a, um, what else is there? There's all iterations of those patterns. Those are all, let's say, squat patterns. A hinge pattern, I might do an RDL, I might do a deadlift, um, I might do a hip extension, I might do a glute bridge. Let's say those are all your hinge patterns, I might pick one of those. Something that works the glutes and or the hamstrings primarily. Then I would pick a row or a pull down, some sort of pulling exercise. Um, you know, maybe if you're doing one day a week, maybe for a, you know a cycle, maybe for six weeks, you pick a row where you're pulling more horizontally. And then in the next time when you switch movements, you do something where you're pulling from vertically. You kind of alternate between those two over time. And then a pressing movement, maybe it's a push up, maybe it's a dumbbell press, uh, even a barbell press or a machine or a cable press. And then that fifth movement, you could say core maybe, um, I might use that as an opportunity to make it fun. Like what, what, you know, I'm not saying the rest of that stuff can't be fun, but I might be like, yeah, let's do a, a crazy arm pump at the end of the workout. Like uh, I'm thinking of what I would do with my dad. He's similar age. I'd be like, yeah, man, let's do some biceps and triceps. Let's do some lateral raises, you know? Like I, people, that's not functional. It's like, shut up, you know? Like, um, first of all, it is functional. And second of all, I think that that fun element is super key for, for people at this age, uh, for anybody really. Next question. If you only had two days a week to lift, what would you focus on to make the most of your time? I know two days isn't ideal. I mean, two days is awesome, by the way. Um, I, I, I've had a little bit of a rant in my head about this. Like CDC physical activity guidelines are, for for lifting, is lifting two days a week. And, and the truth is, for health, that's where we see the vast majority of the benefits. And the reason I laugh about this is like, there's all this like anti-government rhetoric and you can say what you want about government and Honestly, like you could say what you want about the government is opens the door for people to say some crazy radical shit. But but there's just like a lot of people that have like a general mistrust or distrust or don't trust the government. You know what's like, you don't trust the CDC, the anti-vax, like the, the COVID is a lie, like whatever tinfoil hat you want to wear. Whatever tinfoil hat you want to wear, they absolutely nail it with the with the physical activity guidelines. Physical activity guidelines are 150 minutes of, of uh, moderate, uh, sorry, of... Um, easy to moderate cardiovascular exercise or 75 minutes of more vigorous cardiovascular exercise and two days per week lifting. Now, if somebody was like, hey, where should I start? I don't exercise. That is such a ridiculously good starting point. Like they, you again, people are like, I don't trust the government. Okay, fine, whatever. They nailed this physical activity guideline. This is exactly where I would start. And it starts with two days per week lifting because research has shown that's where we see the vast majority of the health benefits. so if it was two days a week, what would I focus on to make the most of your time? I would do two full body lifts and I would listen to the last question that I just answered. I would do a squat, I would do a hinge, I would do a press, I would do a pull, and then I might do something fun. Pick five exercises, do that twice per week. Maybe rotate exercises every eight weeks. Try to progress week to week. You know, you know, you might be able to, you might not some weeks focus on, but, but at the end of the day, focus on training hard. Um, there's a little bit even more nuance of like, should you train all the way to failure on everything? Do lengthen partials. Maybe it's myo reps. Maybe it's supersets. At the end of the day, I'd say, hey, pick five exercises, a squat, a hinge, a press, a pull, uh, and something for fun, maybe arms, whatever. 
um, and do that twice per week, train really hard, and you can get the vast majority, I should be very clear, you can get the vast majority north of 75% of the health benefits of lifting weights at two days a week. Um, please, if there's people out there that are like, I can only do two days a week, so I'm gonna do zero, hell no. Two days a week is amazing, amazing. If you're more muscular out there, I bet you two days a week is not enough to progress. Fine, but that that's a more muscular person looking to get even more muscular. We're not talking about health anymore. You know what I mean? Like that's not a health pursuit anymore, which is fine, by the way, if you wanna have more muscle and be even stronger. Hell yeah, that's great, cool, go, do your thing. And there's probably a little bit of health benefit beyond two days a week, for sure. Um, but don't, please, we're not scoffing at two days a week here. Hell no. Next question. What are we at? 36. Uh, should I be locking or micro-bending, there's a new one, or micro-bending elbows on moves such as shoulder press and glute step-ups? Shoulder press and glute step-ups where I'm holding a dumbbell. Um, I would just... Okay, doing a glute step up where you're holding the dumbbell, you're talking about the arm that's holding the dumbbell, should that arm be straight? Yes. Uh, I wouldn't want you to be engaging a bunch of bicep by bending the elbow. And if you say micro bending, then we're already talking about just like a, a, either a 0% flexion or a fucking 5% flexion. Uh, I'm not worried about it. I would not bend the elbows. Uh, I would just let that hang. I think that it's gonna be easier to hold, more stable, less to worry about if you just allow the arm to hang naturally down. On moves like shoulder presses, should you be locking the elbow? I'm guessing you mean at the top of a shoulder press? The answer is you could, you could. The reason I would, the reason to lock your elbows, the reason to lock your elbows is to establish a consistent range of motion, right? Because you know every time at the top of that overhead press, when you lock your elbows, you know you have achieved a full rep. If you don't bend your elbows, then it just brings into a little bit of um, a little bit of a vague scenario of when actually is the end of the rep. You know, are you going to be slowly but surely bending the elbow less or going up less at a time without noticing? It just it's a little bit more subjective if you don't go all the way to lockout. Um, that said, some people are like, yeah, okay, it's a little bit more subjective, but like at the end of the day, it's no big deal. I don't think it's a big deal. I think whether you lock your elbows at the top of a dumbbell press or not, it just makes fuck all difference long-term. Seriously, I don't think it matters. I'd pick one and try and stick with it. I think um, people are get really kind of, oh my God, keep constant tension on the muscle. Don't lock out the elbows. It's like, dude, if you go close to failure, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you bent your elbows, locked out at the top or kept constant tension on the muscle. It doesn't matter, I promise. Next question. The other day, you posted about engaging your core not being necessary, but as someone who struggled, struggled heavily with prolapse after birth and pelvic floor issues, can you please take that back? Babies do a number on bodies and pelvic floor, proper engagement, lifting is hella important for females. Um, I'm, I'm not gonna take it back just because that's not what I said. <laughs> like that's not the full context of what I said. Um, if you're doing... Yeah, it's not at all the whole context of what I said, but I can see how if that is what you think I said, that there would be a problem with that. Here's the deal. Um, when you're pregnant, engaging your core a little differently, there are some key ways where that might be important, key scenarios. But it, it matters a ton on your exercise selection. Like, if you're doing heavy deadlifts and heavy back squats and heavy lunges, stuff that really does in some ways require core uh, internal stability, 
creating intra-abdominal pressure, then I absolutely think learning to engage the core, and the big thing is just exhaling through the concentric, that's the big one. Um, I think that that's quite important. I think you should, you should uh, most people, what they'll do is they will hold, uh, they will inhale, let's say at the top of the lift, hold that breath in during the eccentric. So let's say a deadlift, uh, or let's say squat. You inhale at the top, you hold that breath, create interabdominal pressure, and then you begin your descent. And you actually hold that breath in until you get back to the top. If you're pregnant, I wouldn't do that. I would start to exhale on the way back up. I think that that's very important. Um, uh, I think that what my... Yeah, hold on, hold on. So uh, also, I'm curious if this person thinks I said this specifically about... So P.S., I'll say two things. I'm going to I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I don't think engaging your core on every single lift all the time for non-pregnant people, by the way, is a big deal at all. I think it's it's so overblown this idea of like how should I be I get people all the time in my program like doing bicep curls and they're like what should my core be doing? I'm like fucking nothing. Like nothing. It's a bicep curl. Stop thinking about your core. If it's a tricep extension, stop thinking about your core. You're doing lateral raise there's no like intra-abdominal valsalva maneuver, internal stability, intra-abdominal pressure you need to be thinking about right now. It's an isolation lift. It's a high stability, seated exercise. It's a machine, what have you. I think that I need to figure out exactly how to brace my core for non-pregnant people is is an, is overrated. Not, not irrelevant in all cases, but overrated a ton. If you are specifically talking about pregnant people, then I think it's, uh, important to to reteach some of this intra-abdominal pressure stuff and some of the breathing techniques during heavy compound lifts. But again, I have people in my group that are like, hey, I can't do this pro- I can't do the the this upper body day anymore because I'm pregnant. I'm like, dude, we're doing seated bicep curls, um, a seated cable row with one arm, single arm lateral raises like hanging off of a cable or something like like uh like an overhead single arm try I'm like you can do all of this stuff and it has nothing to do with bracing and like you don't I, I crack up because um all of the pregnancy workout programs all assume that everyone's doing crossfit and everyone's like every single I I did at least three different pregnancy courses on like how to lift and how to change your, how to take care of your pelvic floor. They all assume that you're doing CrossFit. They're like, here's how you do pull-ups and push-ups and back squats and and deadlifts and barbell bench press. And I'm like, we don't do any of these, you know, like, um, you know, for the most part. What about chest supported rows? What about, uh, you know, an inclined dumbbell press? What about, uh, you know, uh, overhead single arm tricep extension? Like, and, and it's funny, it's like people are like, oh yeah, like you could do that just fine. But nobody's talking about that. Um, so I think that it, you are either mistaking what I said about pregnant people, uh, and, or you're assuming what I said about regular people. I would also say for pregnant people, but that's not true. So that happens a lot. Um, proper engagement with lifting is hella important for females. Yeah. I even think that's just a tough thing to say. Generally speaking, I think for pregnant people learning to breathe is during heavy compound, like think about all the pieces of context I'm adding. For if you're pregnant, learning how to breathe during heavy compound lifts is important. But if you're not pregnant or you're not doing heavy compound lifts, maybe you're doing isolation lifts or really, really high stability exercises that don't require core engagement, then this is not very important. I think that there's just a misunderstanding there a little bit. Cool. 
Next question. Thoughts on a full marathon? Do you plan to do one? How much training should you put into training for a full and a half? I'll start by saying the difference between training for a full marathon and a half marathon are incredibly similar, nearing identical. I know that's like tough to understand. My, my reason stuff to understand is one is twice as long as the other. Once you're at about a half marathon distance, training is incredibly similar. Training for a half or a full or an ultra, it's not like, oh, from a half to a full, you have to do twice the amount of training. And from a full marathon to an ultra, you have to do another 100% extra training, double your training again. That's not how it is. Um, if you go online right now and you Google um, you know, Jakob Ingebrigtsen, whatever, his his half marathon training, right? Or, um, you know, Kipchoge, you look up his marathon training. Like, they are going to look, you won't be able to tell which is which because they, they fall under very similar categories of doing a lot of low-intensity work, right? Some sub-threshold work in that, like, moderate, moderate intensity range and some high, a little bit of high-intensity work. And they are gonna be most likely capped out by time and recoverability. It's like, if you're training for a marathon, people, you know, if you look up Kipchoge, I don't know, whatever he's doing, like 80 to 120 miles, there was a guy who just broke the two mile record. I think he was doing like um, the two mile record or the mar the marathon. And he was like doing a crazy amount of miles. My point is these training programs are gonna look way more similar than they are different. And I think that's really important to understand. You need to be a good runner. You need to train to be a good runner. And you need to be trained to, trained to be a good long distance runner. And people who run half marathons are really good at the marathon. People who run the marathon, really good at the half marathon, really good at the 10K, really good, you know, less good maybe when we get into the 5K range. But there isn't that much of a difference. Um, and so I'm not sure. I think I will do a marathon at some point, but I was, I trained for a half marathon and I thought the next step was gonna be training for a marathon. But I had this talk with my coach and he's like, hey, if you're looking to, to learn more about programming, then I wouldn't go do a marathon because it's gonna be a lot of the same shit we've been doing for a half marathon. So I'm training for a 5K, which when you go down to a 5K distance, becomes more of a speed race, um, less of a long distance run, let's say, and the programming changes a little bit more. And, and that's something I wanted to experience. So the, you're like, how much, should, how much should you put into training for a full and a half? I would say almost the exact same amount of time, frankly, uh, if not exactly the same amount of time. It might be what you do at that time is slightly different, but I, I promise like if you pulled up like 10 of the best marathon runners and 10 of the best half marathon runners, you would not be able to kind of pick and put their training programs in the right place. Um, you, you'd be like, oh, these are all over the place. You know, like I don't know which is which. The training isn't that much different. Cool. Do I plan to do one as of now? Yes, I'm sure in my life it will be something I'd like to do. Um, but not next, let's say. Okay, number one. I'm a nurse practitioner. I'm tired of seeing 45-year-olds die from preventable diseases. I guess we'll go to the hour mark. We'll go, we'll go two more. I'm tired of seeing 45-year-olds die from preventable diseases, heart attacks, strokes, diabetes. I have a healthcare background. And while I get the concept of promoting health, aka telling people to lose weight, eat healthy, stop smoking, etc., most people don't understand or know how to go about doing this. I want to help them. How do you go from I want to help people to I do help people? What was your step? This is a long question. What this is two questions, by the way. What does your step one into your coaching role? What was your step one? And yes, I tried to teach them during my appointments, but there's not enough time to actually devote to coaching them. And that is your, for, you're answering your own question here. And it's two things. One is 
connecting with those people outside of the time. I'm guessing you're an in-person practitioner here. You're saying not enough time to devote to actually coaching them during your appointments. It's developing systems so that you could help those people when they leave you. The, I got to tell you that I was talking about this on uh, Dr. Joey Munoz podcast yesterday. The thing that got me into online coaching was realizing I was seeing all these in-person clients and they wanted to lose weight. They wanted to get healthier. They wanted to work on their habits, but I was only seeing them during their workouts. And so I thought, well, I need to figure out a way to touch these people and their habits outside of our sessions. And so I actually started just online coaching my in-person clients. I was like, hey, when you I, here's a spreadsheet. Let's start tracking habits, portions of protein, servings of vegetables, hours of sleep, whatever. Let's start working on habits. And I realized, oh, I, I, I could do this with other people, not people that are that I'm seeing in person. And so my in-person coaching actually just began as trying to help people during the hours that they're not with me. And for online coaching, they're never with you. So it, it does actually kind of really dovetail nicely into that as a business. Um, the second thing is posting on social media. Now people misunderstand posting on social media as posting on social media does two things. Number one, it, it, it widens the, it, it is a client acquisition, right? It's about, you know, finding more customers. Let's say, uh, it's marketing for sure. Uh, we'll call that width. Width is about exposure to new people. You want to find new people, find new customers, find new clients. The second is depth and that's getting them to trust you. And so you don't even need a big following to have a successful business. If you have really loyal customers and clients and followers that are gonna trust you enough to hire you and give you money for your services. And so sometimes I get caught up, I'm like, I need more followers, I need more followers. At the end of the day, like even if you post a lot and you're not getting new followers, you're still building more and more trust with, with people that are currently following you and making them more likely to hire you. And so it is your job, regardless of whether or not you're like some social media growing guru to post on social media to make sure that the people who do interact with that, like what if you meet somebody like, oh, what is this guy about? What is this gal about? Like giving them a social media of like, hey, this is what I'm about, um, you know, is really important, I think. That is more so for people what social media is about. It's like a a place for people to get to know you. Um, So I think posting on social media and also number one, you asked what's my first step is taking those people that you don't have enough time to devote to coaching them during your appointments and finding a way to coach them outside of your appointments. That's the, what I would absolutely do. All right, uh, all right, we're gonna go to the hour. God damn it, I, just, I, can, I can never stop. Um, oh, there was a third question, geez. Um, yeah, I, my answer still stays the same. I appreciate you asking a long question, by the way. I'm cool with that. Advice for programming slash workout routine for people who just wanna be fit and happy and not care about aesthetics. Um. I think it's not so dissimilar from training for aesthetics, frankly. I think that, like, I just think that, like, people, I'll see, like, squat university who's like, this is what athletes do. This is what bodybuilders do. It's like, well, you're right. At the extreme ends, it's a Venn diagram where there's stuff that athletes do that bodybuilders wouldn't do and stuff that bodybuilders do that athletes wouldn't do. Um, And by the way, this isn't even an athlete question. This is, like, a regular person. Um, I'd say very generally, if you were looking for the optimal health program, I would start with those physical activity guidelines. I would do, let's say, two to three days of cardio per week, two to three days of lifting weights per week, and I'd start there. And when we say lifting weights, I would say, hey, let's focus on the basic movement patterns, squat, hinge, lunge, press, pull, maybe some arms, some shoulders. Um, And then I would do some low-intensity cardio and some high-intensity cardio, and so uh, or higher-intensity cardio. I would do two to to three days per week cardio, two two to three days per week lifting weights, 
and I would focus on the basic movement patterns when it comes to lifting. I wouldn't necessarily be, you know, super focused on this division of that muscle. I'd say, hey, I want to pull horizontally and I want to pull vertically. I want to press vertically. I want to press horizontally. I want to do some hinging. I want to do some squatting. Um, and when it comes to cardio, I'd be like, hey, I want to do some long and slow, low intensity cardio. So some maybe some zone two training and maybe some higher intensity cardio in like zones three, zone four, which would be more of like some interval style training. Some what people might call VO2 max training where you're doing harder intervals between four and eight minutes at a clip, you know, stringing together a couple of those rounds. Um, so that's what I would do if I had, I would say two to three days of lifting, two to three days of cardio. The lifting should be focused on checking off the major movement patterns and the cardio should be focused on, you know, having a little bit in each bucket of low intensity and a little bit higher intensity. And I think you can build a really simple program that way. How long, next question, how long should you be at maintenance before you go back into a deficit? The answer is very simple. It's long enough until you feel like going back into a deficit. There is no amount of time you need to stay at maintenance before going back into a cut. Because if you think there is, then what you're saying is that being at maintenance will fix your, something about your metabolism that will make your next cut more successful or easier, or you can cut on higher calories, and none of that is true. You should stay, you should take a break during your deficit for long enough to get back into a mental and physical state where you think, I could go back into a deficit. Like it's, Take it as the absolute simplest answer that you could imagine. The answer is, stay at maintenance until you feel like going back into a deficit, period. That's it. That is literally it. The people, oh, you should stay in a deficit or you stay at maintenance for the same time you were at a deficit. Like all of those protocols are just made up. They're made up. That doesn't mean they're all bad ideas, by the way. You know, if you're like, hey, I was in an eight week cut and someone's like, you should stay at maintenance for at least half that amount of time. Like that, I'll tell you right now, is completely made up and there's no physiological basis for it whatsoever. However, is that a bad idea? No, because if you were in a cut for eight weeks, presumably you're a little tired, a little hungry, maybe four weeks of eating more food has you feeling really good and robust and resilient and ready to go back to being hungry for another eight weeks or so. Um, so those are all fine ideas, but they're this, the like the diet periodization of like diet for this many weeks, then maintenance for this many weeks, then diet for this many, it's all made up. It's all made up. You could just stay in a deficit the whole time if you want. If that was something that you were uh, happy with the trade-offs. Like there's no actual physiological basis for any of this periodization within dieting. There's only what we think is gonna be practical for the individual. Next question. Key similarities slash differences between your programming and Brian B's programming. Um, I don't know. I, first, I love Brian. Brian Borstein's super smart, good friend, good dude. If you're in either of our groups, Brian does the programming for Paragon, by the way. I'm not in Paragon and I'm not in Brian's program either. Um, if you're talking about his specific programming for himself, I know that Brian does right now. He doesn't go on the basic week calendar. That would be a big one. I think Brian does like nine week micro, nine day microcycles. What I mean by that is like he goes through maybe lifting five days every nine, five workouts every nine days. I'm making that up, maybe six workouts every nine days instead of doing like the Monday to Monday sort of like seven day week, that would probably be a big difference. Paragon doesn't do that, but I know Brian does in his own programming. Um, I'd say Brian and my programming are incredibly similar. I'd say we both are on the moderate to low end of the volume spectrum. We are on the moderate to high intensity side of the spectrum to save time. I think we both like 
the utilization of intensity techniques where both, we both have been enjoying some length and partial work. Um, I'd say very, very similar program, to be honest with you. We might have different ways of explaining stuff. Um, I, I'm not in the group. I'm not in Paragon. I don't know what they do, but I know that Brian's mega smart, and I know that we have we share, I'd say, a vast majority of the same principles when it comes to programming. And so you might get some slight differences, but man, I mean, if there was another person I'd advocate you go find, check out and go follow their programming, it would be Brian. Damn, you guys at Paragon. So many group members. Next question, weird question. What are you doing tomorrow? This podcast. If you have widespread joint pain, would it be preferable to work in the eight to 12 rep range as opposed to less reps and more weight or does it make much difference? I know there's more context to this, but uh, is this a thing in regards to joint pain? I appreciate your time. So what this person's saying is, should I use slightly higher reps and slightly less weight as an appeal to my joint pain, as a way of... Uh, making my joint pain less? And the answer is maybe. The answer is maybe. Um, you know, it's not completely untrue that using much heavier weights might be harder on the joints. But if you go to failure at a set of 10 and you go to failure on a set of three, um, I'd say they're both like challenging, excuse me, challenging to your joints. I would say I'd rather you take this. I think that's a good idea so one of the reasons I would be an advocate for hypertrophy training is it's probably more joint friendly than powerlifting per se, but not just from a rep range and loading perspective, but also from an exercise selection standpoint. So I think you're onto something here generally in that I, if I had widespread joint pain, I probably wouldn't go mega heavy, mega low reps. So you have my blessing in terms of that, but I would take it even further from an exercise selection standpoint. For me, I'm going to take a specific exercise, uh, an overhead tricep extension. I love most of my training in the six to 10 rep range. I love all of my pressing and my bilateral pulling. I love it and my squatting, my hinging. I love it all in the six to 10 rep range. But when it comes to single joint movements, specifically stuff with triceps, I love in more of the 12 to 20 rep range with lighter weight. It feel like it's, it, I'll tell you right now, if I do a set of seven overhead extensions, my elbow hurts. If I do a set of 17, my elbow doesn't hurt and my triceps are smoked. And so I think there is, I don't want to be like glorify this idea of using higher reps for um, for joint pain, let's say, but I do think that it's worth exploring and I think it's worth exploring on an exercise to exercise basis. Have you heard of Slenderix? My Facebook feed is full of people posting how amazing it is and the results. The result picks are people manipulating the picks to make themselves look, thin, look thinner. I roll. I have not heard of it. Sounds like a hot steaming pile of cow dung. If you know what movie that is from, shout out to like when movies were good. I have been, next question. I've been very consistent with creatine and noticed that I'm sleeping better. Lots of issues with sleep, usually despite things, but I can't find a link between creatine and sleep. Is there any chance that is what is helping? So I think his name is Greg Potter. A long time ago, I'm, it's funny, I'm, this is why I'm thinking, Greg Potter did a podcast with a, a, a friend, colleague, Steve Hall, Revive Stronger. He's been on the podcast a million times, but there is a podcast where they've covered sleep. I think his name's Greg Potter. I know his last name is Potter, not Harry Potter. And they talked about this and they talked about how creatine might, I think might be helpful during times where you're training really hard when it comes to sleep. But I, I, I would be out of line trying to give you more in terms of exactly how that works. But I, if I find the podcast, if you're the one who asked this question, 
shoot me a message. I'll see if I can find that episode for you. Next question. So you're sure four exercises plus an optional one is enough? Kind of question face. I know it is, but sometimes it feels like it isn't. So I'll tell you now, my group program for my leg days are usually about four exercises, usually about two to four sets each, all working sets, all close to failure. If you do that twice a week, it's more than enough to make gains. And frankly, if you're not, I look at my leg days, if you're not kind of fucked up from those days, like if you're not feeling, wow, my legs are really working, then I really just don't think you're training hard enough. I'm not trying to be that like, kind of like, I don't want to just sit on that as an, as a, as a default answer, but I'm like looking at a workout of like RDL, leg press, split squat, ham curl. I'm like, hold, I, I don't even know if I could survive that workout if I trained all of those close to failure. Um, and so if you're doing RDL, hip extension, you know, three sets of Bulgarian split squats, ham curls, like that's a hell of a workout if you train hard. And so if you're feeling that way, number one, I think you're probably just coming from a, a place of a lot of junk volume, which most people are. I mean, most programs are packed with a bunch of junk volume. Um, and I sympathize with that, by the way. I sympathize with where you're coming from. And I just want to say the answer is yes, absolutely. If you train hard, more than enough. Last question. How many calories should a meal be? I had a can of tuna with a salad kit the other day and the whole thing was like 250 calories as long as the nutrition facts on the packages were correct. 250 seems low for a meal, but it was also over 40 grams of protein for the whole can of tuna. So there is no correct answer to this question. There is no like should, there's no should. It should be, you know, enough to feel satiated to hold you over till your next meal it should be enough that when you factor it into the rest of what you're eating across the day that you feel satiated and that you're able to achieve your goals, whether that's to be in a deficit or maintenance or a surplus. And so there, it's not like, you know, I think a, a decent baseline answer that, that you can start with is if you're trying to eat 2000 calories and you're eating three times per day, then you would split that up into three meals, right? 633 calories each, right? Again, super, I'm being overly meticulous with the number, but I think it's not a bad default setting to say, hey, I'm gonna split my calories roughly evenly across the day. There's nuances there though. Like what if you're like, well, I like eating more at dinner with my family and I like having a snack after dinner. Like, can I eat a little bit less at breakfast and backload the calorie? You, of course, you totally can do that. Absolutely, you can do it the opposite too and say, you know what? I like eating a little bit less at dinner because I feel like I sleep better when I don't have a huge meal at the last meal of the day. Can I have more calories at breakfast and lunch? Absolutely. Both of those make a ton of sense to me, by the way. I have been falling into the trap of having a lot of calories at, let's say, between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. and then trying to go to bed at like 9 p.m., I'm still pretty freaking full and that can affect my sleep negatively. So I've been like, okay, what if I, if I like having that snack after dinner, let's say, can I start making my dinners a little bit less caloric, start making my breakfast and lunch a little bit more caloric so that I'm not stuffed when I'm, you know, sitting down on the couch after, you know, after we shower and get ready for bed, you know? So uh, the answer is, I don't know. There's no perfect answer. I think there's nothing wrong with this, by the way. That that seems like a super high volume, high protein meal, which potentially, depending on your goals, can be a really great option. Um, I think tuna can, or can, cans of tuna and salad kit is is like complete. Like to me, it's it's like just such a great, base of a meal, it's going to fill you up a ton. It's going to be high in protein, especially if you're trying to be in a deficit. This is a great idea, but even from a calorie maintenance perspective, like I think this stuff, you know, generally picking high protein, higher volume foods is generally a good idea too. Um, so cool. Good questions, guys. We got a bunch more, but I'll try and answer some of those on Instagram. And so I appreciate your time. Thank you for asking questions. I will see you guys in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of where optimal meets practical. 
If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.